Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco Podcast. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today, I'm talking to Kath Thompson, a co-founder at Hyperreal. Hi, Kath. Good morning, James. Okay, it's a kind of a strange introduction we're going to do here. I've known you for quite some years now. We first came across each other when you were working at the Digital Transformation Office. That's right. I was building the digital marketplace. That's right. And you'd come from a long background in procurement, in change management, in those sorts of areas. And right now, you're doing a PhD, if I'm right. That's right. In addition to consulting work with Hyperreal in trust in the digital world, which is something that uh, we'll be talking about today. It would be remiss of me if I didn't introduce you by also saying that you're one of a very small handful of women who've participated in a Grand Prix motorcycle race, 125cc category. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And have also been the uh, passenger in competitive sidecar, which seems crazy to me, among a bunch of other adventure sports you've done. So let's start with the DTO. We're going to discuss today a bunch of things around government procurement, government service delivery. We'll be talking about trust in government and how that's influenced by these new digital ways of doing things. But let's start at the DTO. Created in 2015, it really, at the time, I mean, it was odd because Malcolm Turnbull put it together out of the communications portfolio, then subsequently became prime minister and made government as an exemplar one of the foundational elements of his national innovation and science agenda. So you've been an observer and a participant in digital service delivery. What's happened over that time? If you look at your time in government and then as an observer post-government, what are you looking at? I was extremely fortunate to be at the Digital Transformation Office at a time of intense creativity and when things were being delivered. So it was a hands-on build and cloud.gov.au, the dashboard, which looked at how successful government services were put together, the digital service standard was rolled out, digital identity program got kicked off. And um, obviously, my own marketplace. Then I was on the mop up crew for the e census and participating in the ICT procurement reform agenda. Since then, I think we've seen the switch to the digital transformation agency being a policy unit and not a delivery unit. So we've seen in recent days a desire to hark back to what the DTO is actually doing. So the MyGov audit, its recommendations point to some of the things that are not happening now that were happening then. So it's looked at reinvigorating the digital service standard. In other words, putting in minimum technical and user standards. It's looked at re-adopting the design system, which at the moment, crazily, is supported by an open source community outside of government. And that's standardized components for anything with a .gov.au domain name. And then it's reconsidering the platform choices. You know, Do we use commercial software? Do we go back to ideas of building, maintaining our own and that collaborative environment that the open source community presents? And I think that the 
Robot at Royal Commission first recommendation also points to that because their first recommendation is design policies and processes with an emphasis on the people they're meant to serve. And they're talking about tone of voice and empathy. They're talking about multi-channel and they're talking about plain language. So if you look at that, you're saying that the nearest successor to the Digital Transformation Office is not the Digital Transformation Agency. It's something like Service New South Wales. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. So a lot has happened in the last eight years. I suppose not all of it good, but you know that's the nature of life. When we talk about digital service standards and even down to things like the tone of communications, how in a federal system where you have a digital transformation agency that's doing some of the policy work but implemented elsewhere, does that have a, a chance of success from a whole-of-government perspective? So I think that if you look at Government Digital Services, the UK agency, which the original DTO's model on some of its staff came from, you'd say yes. Now, they are not that centralised right now because they have a network effect. Whereas at this uneven stage in the evolution of Government Digital Services and Government Multi-Channel Services here in Australia, we do need that central thinking design agency and some kind of normative standards. So we also need, I think, a broader vision of what digital transformation actually means, a much hackneyed and overused term. But Paul, our mutual friend Paul Shetler, and I sat down and we said, well, what are the elements if you're looking at digital transformation, i.e. being a company or entity that works in the 21st century in a 21st century kind of way, what are the elements that you need? So firstly, you need to decide what good looks like from your perspective your policies, your procedures, your processes, your ways of working. And then you need to figure out how you're going to orchestrate the things you want to do, how you're going to fund those things appropriately, how you're going to look to the future to see what next you want to do, the capabilities you need to deliver that, how you're going to tell from a metrics perspective whether those things are working, the incentives you get to get people to come on board, and the narrative that gets them to buy into that sort of thing. And if you don't have some form of holistic coordination looking at all those things and monitoring them, you'll probably never get the level of maturity that you want, or you'll get it not holistically, you'll get it in places, you'll get centres of excellence, in other words. You won't get centre-led. So I'm interested to know whether you think that that kind of leadership can come out of an agency that isn't also delivering it, doesn't have sleeves rolled up, hands-on delivery capability, even if it's in partial areas. No, I don't believe that it can. Because that goes down to show, don't tell. If you tell people you haven't got their confidence by showing that you know what you're talking about, you simply deliver detail, but you don't deliver substance. And a lot of the policies we're seeing coming out of the DTA at this stage anyway are detail. They're not substance. So you look at the digital strategy, it says, here's an outline, we'll give you the rest later. That's slogans, not deliverables. If you look at the digital professions, there's a lot of talking there, but there are no smart goals, the old smart goals. They're not measurable, they're not time-bound, they're aspirational. But unless you're looking to get concrete outcomes in a concrete timeline in a way that you'll report transparently, you're not really going to make that much progress. In order to do that, you need to have expertise and capability. Okay, so let's talk about expertise and capability. There's been a lot of talk in recent months about consultants, and I guess external service providers in into government 
And I guess you would have to say up to a point, governments need to be able to hire externally, obviously, sometimes for very big projects, sometimes for specific skills. But as an outsider looking in, it seems that things have gone off track and that that core expertise is now external to government and is being leveraged against government. Just talk us through what it looks like. I don't even know how this would get wound back. Maybe you've got some ideas. Yeah, well, I think it probably started off with a headcount caps. So the ability to recruit expertise into government was certainly in marketplace, was highly compromised by that. And that's costly in two ways. Firstly, I think in the 2017 ICT procurement reform report, it costs about 80 grand more to get a contractor in, if you're talking about contractors, than it does to get a permanent member of staff. And if you're looking at a consultant, you're actually driving the cost of delivering your projects up to the very highest unit cost of production that you could possibly get. And secondly, it costs you in terms of missing knowledge, institutional knowledge. You don't develop that institutional memory because it's held externally to your organization. So there is a challenge with Canberra because Canberra is a company town. 40% of everybody works for either state or federal government. And what this company town produces is largely a policy. So it breeds generalists and there's limited experience and there's good reason why you'd want to bring in specialists who've had lots of experience in a variety of different environments that they can bring back to you. So when I was consulting, I worked through chemicals, metals, manufacturing, aviation, brewing, financial services, etc. And it sounds like the world's worst motorway pileup in terms of industries. So people from outside potentially can bring in the experience that you wouldn't get if you'd simply been within government. But that, of course, would be negated if you could recruit generalists into the organizations. Then there's an accountability and risk thing. There's the old adage that you can't outsource risk, but you can air gap yourself from it by pointing at someone else and saying it's their fault. But also, you're creating dependencies, that knowledge base isn't with you. I think attitudinally, there may also be some view that technology and other specialists are under laborers to the policy class. Question mark, thinking about that. Then there's the NPP process, which encourages that big lick of money and the the easiest way to get that kind of thing is to go to a third party and say, how much would it cost to deliver this project? Then there's the ability to be outmaneuvered by suppliers. So on the one side, you've got quite generally low-skilled procurement people, and then you've got account managers who are paid large amounts of money to make sure they stay extremely close to their client base and their potential client base. And they're also looking for annuity revenue. So they're positioning at every stage of the procurement process to continue their involvement over time. That's what they do. And you've got procurement people who probably have no supplier performance management, supplier relationship management skills, and who have low contracting skills. And both of those are gaps where you know savvy suppliers can wedge their way in continuously. So you also then have lack of transparency. So that whole idea of sunshine's the best sanitation. In the ICT procurement reform report, we said that large projects should be reported on both in terms of what they spend and in terms of what outcomes they're reaching. And that was rebuffed by the government who said, we'll circulate this information internally. So in the absence of that, the ability of people like yourselves with that really important truth-telling function is reduced to what you can get from FOIs. And that extends that cycle time where things are critically reviewed. The other kinds of things that would help would be a change in funding models so that you didn't simply fund everything from the get-go that you funded up to the next stage of a project. 
And then when that project, if it got there, you would fund it a bit more. And that would stop the death of a thousand cuts, which is where they do variation so that a project just continues to run on and be more and more expensive. And it would also tell you when you had a project that was failing and simply not going to meet the mark so that you would kill it early. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I mean, there's a project that we followed from very early on, and you're talking about sort of incremental funding of meeting different stages. But when we looked at a project known as GovDXP, which was effectively the front-end rebuild of MyGov, there was an original contract of less than a million dollars, and we've written about this a lot, that went to Deloitte and Adobe to do a prototype for this new experience that we we're going to have with MyGov. But that less than a million dollar prototype kind of rolled on to multiple tens of millions of dollars. I think we're up to 80 plus million dollars that stemmed from limited tender of less than a million dollars. So I never understood how that decision was made, how it's decided to go with that platform or even that supplier. And in terms of the transparency, no, you never get an answer from the organizations involved. Anyway, other projects. So in recent days. Oh, just a comment on that one. You don't need to. There's this huge fallacy at the heart of government procurement. So the idea is that they set up procurement process to make things you know, simple, clear and fast for buyers, which is fine, but it doesn't give you good procurement. So the idea is that you enter a panel as a supplier and that's supposed to be value for money. There is no possibility that you can ever assess value for money without a use case. The best you can do is compare someone's rate card to someone else's rate card. You can't tell whether the people, if it's a consulting firm, the people they have available in January will be as good a quality or better quality than the people they have available in September. You have no idea about those things, but it is considered to be a competitive event, even though there's no one clear winner from going to a panel. You just appoint as many people as you like. But that is the one and only necessary competitive event. Quite recently, the Department of Finance issued some guidance that it was better practice, and I'm air quoting here, to ask more than one supplier, but not in any way obligatory. There was also something that the DTA wrote in response to the ANAO audit, which said that generally buyers are really busy and they're too busy to put more competition into things, which is not a fantastic statement. So it is perfectly acceptable to pick a vendor from a list without doing any competitive process whatsoever. And in the case of the one that you're talking about, it was a proof of concept, $1 million, which then went into a complete award. But because they were already on the panel, they didn't need to even consider anybody else. And there we have it, a project that is ongoing. And um... and it's far from the only one. I mean, if you look at another one that's been very high profile has been the RoboDebt Price Waterhouse. That was initiated by a phone call from testimony from the Royal Commission by the secretary that picked up to the partner at PwC. And there's a question asked, was this someone who is known to you in your social circle? And the answer was yes. Well, I mean, I don't know. At face value, that seems substandard to me. But we're going to talk about RoboDebt in just a minute. But let me talk just quickly. There's three projects that have come to light or have been in the media this year anyway. The Entitlements Calculation Engine, which is a part of Whippet out of Services Australia. The Permissions Capability was out of Home Affairs. and PEMS, the Parliamentary Entitlements Management System, all ultimately a colossal waste of money. I, I don't know how many tens of millions, or I think we're actually into the hundreds of millions with those 
three projects. If there's no kind of outcomes-based pricing or outcomes-based competition within a tender, you end up with a process by which all of the suppliers have been paid, the clients have got nothing, and the taxpayers are on the hook. That's not outsourced risk. That's the public has taken all the risk and the suppliers none if there's no consequence. Is it fair to say there's no consequence? Yes, I think so. And I've been advocating for ages that you really need to establish an agency that does centralised procurement that has experts who are good at this kind of stuff because it is a skill set. It's not considered a profession within government, so it's not a recognised skill set. I know the parliamentary inquiry has been looking quite seriously at that, but they've gone deeper and deeper down the tunnel since the um, revelations about consultants have come to the fore. And their work is, is a lot, I think, longer and more serious than we'd initially envisioned. It comes down again to, to proper procurement, and that's no panel shortcuts. Proper procurement, having people who know the technology, who know how to draft a specification document, who know how to evaluate it, and who know how to contract, then who know how to price. So there are various different pricing models. Time and materials uncapped is the worst of them. Getting caught out by variations is the second worst of them. You should be doing milestone-based pricing, but what that also predicates is that you have really sophisticated testing and acceptance capabilities, which means you also know what you're looking at. And that it means that your test scripts have not been written by the supplier themselves. They've been written in-house, which predicates that you have that expertise. And then your professional organizations would also have a defects liability retention period. Typically, if I was contacting something back in the days and I was doing this stuff commercially, you know, you'd look at three months for about 20 to 30% of the contract value after it had been accepted for things that were ironed out and you wouldn't give it otherwise. And again, the fact that you don't know about these things until they failed, you know, they're in the toy box, they get pulled out and they're no longer toys that you can play with. So you don't have that transparency and accountability. Going back to the 2017 ICT procurement reform report recommendations, any large projects, and state governments already do this, any large projects over a certain amount should be publicly dashboarded, not only how much they cost, but when they're projected to finish, and their likely progress is that you can tell when things are falling off the perch. And there are no consequences. There are no consequences for the sellers because you don't have centralized supplier performance or supplier relationship management. You have relationship managers for the large consultants who work across all government, who are the point of contact. You don't have the same thing within government. So if you're having trouble in one agency, you may well have a wonderful relationship with another one. Because we don't coordinate, we government, the government gets caught out all the time. Yeah, we seem a long way from where you're describing we could be. Let's talk about RoboDebt for a minute. I mean, it's an outstanding example of a service delivery program that has gone awry. Consequences, whether they're intended or unintended, were horrendous. So. You're doing a PhD, coincidentally, on trust in the digital world. You would like to say that something like RoboDirt will never happen again. No one wants that to happen again. But it almost certainly will, won't it? And as an outsider, again, looking in, it's very hard to understand how government can win back the trust of citizens in these core areas. So my PhD started by being about trust and swiftly became about trustworthiness because it is possible to trust 
something that is not trustworthy at all. And that's the crux of it. Trustworthiness is a higher order construct because to trust, you've got to make a decision, do I or don't I trust? And people who are in low optionality conversations, i.e. government and citizen, they can't really go anywhere else, are not in a position where they can make a decision to trust or not. So it's up to the service itself to be trustworthy. And in this case, it actually wasn't. So I, I've been interested in RoboDebt since 2019. I was asked by DHS at the time, post RoboDebt, to build their data trust and ethics framework, including policy and, and tools. So my interest in RoboDebt grew from that period. Was it deliberative? Was it not? There's a guy called Stafford Beer who was one of the founders of cybernetics, which was a contributor to complexity science. And he said that the purpose of the system is what the system does. So which means you don't look at the intention or the design of the system, you actually look at what it delivered. And in this case, it delivered unjust, cruel and unfair outcomes. So I think the bigger question is, why did the system behave in that way? So when I'm looking at framing socio-technical systems, because failure in socio-technical systems is somewhere I've spent you know, my entire professional life, I look first at the technological artifact, because that's a manifestation that's kind of easy to get to and understand. And that's why people also talk about that it was a flawed algorithm that was this, it was that, because it, it's something you can actually grasp. It was a very basic calculation, not really an algorithm at all. But if you look at the context, you've got the psychographic contents. Canberra was formed to do government. And at the time, psychographically, you know, the government house sits at the top of the hill. Everyone does a pilgrimage up to the top of the hill. There had been layoffs. There had been this strategy versus delivery, DHS, DSS thing. There was a downsizing, I think, from 19 secretaries to 16 secretaries. So there was kind of intense competition to get in front of the ministers and um, deliver what they actually wanted. And from a philosophical doctrinal perspective, that was this strong welfare cop on the beat vibe that was coming across by the government of the day. And so those policy propositions were slanted towards delivering that kind of outcome. And could it happen again? Absolutely. Because if you look at all the checks and balances that were supposedly there, they all fail to the point where the federal court says, no, it's illegal. So if you look at the interventions that were supposed to be done by the ombudsman, the Office of Legal Services, the DTA itself, the OAIC potentially, you're looking at functions that generally have people in them who are beholden to the public service for their broader career. They come out of the public service and they go back into the public service. And so that independence from that perspective is purely illusory because you don't want to be reporting on the person who could be your next boss or your next colleague. What you try and do is not use your ultimate powers if you have them. You look to delivering informal consensus and those things all failed. Up to even the AAT, which is independent, you had effectiveness for individual cases, but the ability of the agency to say that's a one-off, that person's view can be discarded. And those truth-tellers were very ruthlessly dismissed. So I think what we haven't got to yet, and that's starting to play out now, is the issue of ministerial accountability for the action of agencies. I think that's something that uh, is still ongoing. And I think what you're seeing recently is something that came up in the 1950s, and it's called Techniques of Neutralization. It says when someone has done something shady or cruel or unjust, how do they 
this is in the context of criminology originally, how do they talk to themselves about it? And there's two things. It wasn't me or I wasn't responsible. And one of those techniques is condemning the condemner. So the person that said this about me is wrong. They're unjustified. They're worthless. They're meritless. They're not expert. They've got the wrong idea, et cetera. And I, and I think those are the conversations that we're seeing play out in the media at the moment. And there were certainly ones that were pointed towards, well, Terry Carney, for example, from the AAT, who first raised the flag on this in AAT1 reviews. All of that was incredibly depressing. So thank you for that. But I suppose it genuinely is. But I guess that was the nature of RoboDebt, and that's why we're having the conversation. But some of the interplays between those independent bodies, like the Ombudsman and AAT and, and those kinds of referees, it sounds both systemic and cultural that enabled them to not step forward and at least put brakes on, right? Yes. There were so many instances that it has to be more than a coincidence. You know, once a coincidence, twice is bad luck, three times is, you know, deliberate. So you had a number of agencies start to do something and then step out. The ATO, for example, one of their data custodians said, well, I don't think that this use that you're putting it to is consistent with our data sharing protocols. Let's stop this. And then that eventually just vanished, went away, was overridden, and the information was shared. Yeah, well, I guess uh, there are plenty of campaigners out there right now who are suggesting that there is a robo-NDIS that has many similar attributes to the original robo-debt. And they are saying that it is producing some unjust and unfair results for those most in need. So we'll no doubt hear more about that as we move on. I don't know how much you've, I guess it's unavoidable now, but how much you've had to do with the implementation of AI systems into government. Everyone's seems to be talking about it. So I'm just going to ask you this. That would surely exacerbate potential issues? I mean, if you get something on such a simple calculation as what appeared to be the fundamentals of robo-debt, if we can get that so vastly wrong, then uh, implementation of quite serious algorithms must surely be cause for concern. Yes, especially in the case of so-called black box algorithms. Because the way that those are reviewed is by saying, you know, they've made their own connections internally. And the only way we can really understand what their outcomes are, are by taking away several of the variables and seeing how that affects the outcome. So you're testing the result against, if I took this bit away, if I took that bit away, does it change? Oh, no, that's not a material variable. Oh, that one is a material variable. And this is my best guess as to how it's making decisions. But that kind of transparency It's something you have to work back from. It's not something that's inherent to the model itself. And that is one of the largest challenges I think we have. All right. I'm talking to Kath Thompson, the co-founder at HyperReal. Kath, it's been an illuminating conversation. I'm quite sure that you're going to have a very busy future given how intrinsic digital service delivery is to the way that governments operate. Just to leave on a, I don't even know if we can leave on an upbeat note, where are the bright spots, either here in Australia, state or federal, or offshore, that where things are going well in terms of a digital transformation projects or the way that people are managing their procurements? What are some areas that seem to be working? So you do have bright sparks in federal government. You have some extremely talented younger people coming up through the ranks who are being well mentored. You do have Exemplars here, and I mentioned it earlier, which is Service New South Wales. I think they're the digital spiritual successor to the DTO. 
They're multi-channel. You can walk in, you can interact online. They're very customer-centered. And they've simply grown out from a very small base to include more and more things. And they've done it by being good and useful and working with their partner agencies. Procurement-wise, oh my goodness, you'd need to look to the private sector because private sector procurement is completely different. So I was a chief procurement officer at ANZ Bank back in the day, 10 years ago now. But the kind of things that we were doing then, I'd say were eight or 10 years behind what's happening in the UK in the private sector. We were doing fully open book pricing back in the 1980s. So there's a lot to be learned there and a lot of professional institutions. Even in Australia, there are all sorts of really innovative, transformational digital things. I was head of delivery at Zero Latency, which are uh, free roam VR gaming, which is the best fun I've ever had and will ever have in a job. I left there to go to the DTO to you know fulfill my citizenship mission. But those kinds of things are fantastic and replete with potential. There's a lot of that going in Australia and we need to showcase more of it. Wonderful. Kath Thompson, thank you very much for joining me on the Commercial Disco. I have to say, just as an aside, I can remember the time and place of my first visit to a service New South Wales. It was such an incredible experience because, you know, when you do these things where you walk in somewhere and you know it's going to be extremely painful. I can't remember what I was doing, probably a new license. And I walked in and it was not painful and it was a joy and it was really quite something. And back then, honestly, you couldn't even do that much in a service New South Wales. It's uh, far more digitized now. I mean, which is not to pump them up too much. There's lots of state governments doing interesting things in that regard. But I think they absolutely led this country in terms of some of the work that they did. And that goes back to trustworthiness. And trustworthiness is repeatedly doing what you say you're going to do. Over and over again. Over and over again. Even if it's tough and even if you don't necessarily want to. <laughs> Anyway, look, we are at a moment in time, I think, with service delivery and some of these big projects. We really, I think, will look back on 2023 as something of a watershed year, but what comes after that watershed, we'll be waiting to see. But Kat Thompson, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead. <laughs>